Welcome back to CityPod, the podcast of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia. I'm your host, Derek Lemons, Director of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology and Associate Professor of Religion. You're listening to Season 2, Part 1, which continues our topic about religious change. Today, we will hear Part 1 of several brief interviews with academic leaders and researchers, which will continue in Part 2. My first guest for today's episode is Abby Day, who is a professor of race, faith, and culture at Goldsmiths, University of London. All right, so thank you, Abby Day, for meeting with me to record this podcast. And to get started, I want to ask you the question, from what you've learned from your research, why do you think religious beliefs at times change very quickly, and what kind of social impacts do these changes have? Well, thank you for the question, and thank you for this really interesting event. I guess sounding like I'm going to hedge it, um, of course this is a, a multi-layered question, and the answer as well is multi-layered. So change happens for a number of reasons, and sometimes there may be what I could describe as a perfect storm, maybe a coincidence of several events and uh, several trends at once that may provoke more change. But I think what we have to always keep our eyes on is that religious belief itself has to be questioned in terms of whether we're talking about certain doctrines or certain ways of behaving. And I think sometimes we confuse those. So for example, we may see something come along like Vatican II. A lot of people will make quite a lot of that in the early 60s as if that was going to change a great deal of behavior. But it didn't change a lot of behavior for certain segments of the population. Uh, There may have been some secularizing influences in, for example, having uh, liturgy restructured. But I'm not convinced that changed people's relationality to either the clerics at the time or to their god. So we might have religious leaders proclaim certain things, but that doesn't necessarily come down in the same way to the people who believe and practice them. Now, Talal Assad was very good about showing how, in, as he described it, in the medieval ages, there were certain ways and certain technologies that people demonstrated their beliefs, particularly monks in certain disciplines and in certain things that they did. But those will change over time. And so, for example, you might look at the 1960s and say, well, when people went to church, they always wore hats. When did that stop? Well, sometime in the 1960s. But did the wearing of a hat actually mean that they had changed their beliefs? Well, you might think it's just fashion. But actually look at it. What is that telling us about what people are doing? Perhaps it was an act of deference. Perhaps it was an act of formality. Perhaps it was an act of showing a difference between their everyday clothing and their Sunday best. And maybe that's what changed. Maybe it was a change in not fashion, but the change of attitude towards how people dress. We might look at the 1960s in general and say, well, people were experimenting. Fashion became more fashionable. And therefore, this also affected what people wore to church. But as I was saying, what people wear isn't just the fashion. It's also reflecting certain attitudes. So 
if we look back at something like the 1960s and say, okay, well, we had a, let's say, cultural revolution that took place on many different levels. It wasn't just the fashion. It was people's attitudes towards authority. It was people's attitudes towards sexuality. And if that's going on at the same time as other events, say, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis, say, for example, the Cold War. Now, some people look at those years and say, there was a tremendous amount of anxiety. There was a tremendous interest in how we were going to live on this planet where we had the capability of wiping each other out. Did that change people's ideas about what was important? Did that change people's ideas about the communities they thought they had to live in? I can remember being very young and going through what we had at the time. We had nuclear bomb drills where at school we had to run down and put our shoes on and run home. That was in North America in the period of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, I don't know quite what effect that had on children, but looking back, I'm sure it must have been a major effect. Why we looked through times like the Cold War and the possibility of immediate annihilation and say that didn't have an effect on how we might consider religiosity and spirituality? I think it did have an effect. It probably shook people up in terms of what was at stake and maybe how they want to live their lives. There's also a strand, not my personal strength of scholarship, but a strand in post-Holocaust theologies. How did people reconcile what had happened in the Holocaust? How did Jews reconcile their relationship with their God? What happened to the covenant? Why weren't people rescued? Those are enormous questions that people today, of course, are still wrestling with. But apparently, for many people, caused a rupture caused a rethinking of their relationship to their God and to their other members of their community. So there are sometimes things that happen, perhaps on a worldwide scale, that are catastrophic, that are anxiety-making, that overturn what we might think is important in life, challenge what we might think is humanity, and sometimes accentuate what Weber talked about a lot as the problem of meaning. How can? an all-loving, all-powerful God, all-seeing God, allows such terrible things to happen. And people have wrestled with that question for centuries, of course. And they've wrestled with them and come up with different theological answers. But sometimes, maybe there isn't a theological answer. Maybe that's sometimes when people turn more away from those kinds of ideas of God and say, well, if there is that God, I'm not having a relationship with him because I can't justify a world where such bad things happen. So I think the idea has to come from looking, as I said at the beginning, the idea of what we mean about belief and consider it not just as a proposition or a doctrine, but also emotional in terms of things that we might have faith in or lose faith in, and consider then if those happen in a time period where other structural changes are happening that might accelerate what we might see as religious change. Let me ask you a question. You were talking about the 1960s, and I know the innovation of the birth control pill gets a lot of discussion, and there are you know, sometimes two sides to this discussion about the interpretation of that change. Some saying it as a very freeing um, opportunity, and then some people that I've read recently in more conservative Catholic settings are seeing that as kind of the unraveling of their religious tradition. What would you say to 
that specific topic, but more how people in religious communities begin to interpret those types of innovations? Well, it's a good question, but when we look at the birth control pill and its impact, I think we should remember that the decline of fertility happened well before that. Women were taking some kind of action, perhaps not as pharmaceutically convenient as the pill. But certainly, uh, fertility was, was declining anyway, certainly in the West. And so we ask ourselves, why would that be occurring? In the same way that right now we can see there's questions going on in Northern Ireland, which just had to change its laws about abortion to fall into line with the UK. There still are parts of uh, North America and Canada and parts of the UK that are very opposed to ideas like abortion. But I don't think you'd find many people opposed to birth control. And certainly when you look at the ways of fertility and you look at countries that are very Catholic and you will see the decline and low fertility rates, you know something's happening here, that people are taking matters into their own hands. Why is that? Well, I think fertility is very much linked in these cases to the idea of what women want to do with their bodies and their time. And it may be the case that for a lot of women in those periods, they emphasis on their own lives and ability to be able to be perhaps more in their eyes than a mother but also a person with more dominating career in their life and that was a choice they wanted to make. And so I can understand there would be anxiety uh, amongst some religious circles but I think you'll find that most of that anxiety is expressed by men. And you'll also find that if you look at the surveys about people's beliefs in terms of abortion, birth control, divorce, same-sex marriage, you'll find that the, let's say, more conservative end of the spectrum of the main religions line up rather agreeably. In other words, a more conservative Muslim will have more in common with a more conservative Christian on those issues than each would have with their fellows in the middle ground. So conservative orthodox religious people tend to agree on those particular aspects. But I'll push it a little further than just saying orthodox, and I will say patriarchal. When people discuss abortion, birth control, same-sex marriage, what they're talking about isn't just something religious. It's something about the most important powers in a society, that of reproduction, that of sexuality. And when people need to control members of society, they want to control that. So that's why I think it's important to look at who's doing the arguing. And you'll think right now, when you look at the rise of new right movements, so-called populist movements, it's not a term I tend to use because populism sounds like it's almost a nice thing. I would say in most cases it's fascism. Those movements are increasingly misogynist, increasingly anti-LGBT, and you think, why would that be the case? Why would somebody, just because they are a fascist who doesn't like immigration, also be so against women's rights and rights of gender and rights of sexual identity? And I suggest that you'll look at those movements and see how they are dominated by very patriarchal beliefs and structures. Men don't want to let go of that power. And I think that is what is driving that anxiety.
The next person I sat down with was Anishka Giwala Lahia, a PhD candidate at the London School of Economics. Thank you, Anisha, for doing this podcast today. Let me ask you uh, the question of the day. And from what you've learned from your research, why do you think religious beliefs at times change very quickly, and what kind of societal impacts do these changes have? So how do beliefs change quickly? In my research in the diaspora, beliefs change quickly due to circumstance. A lot of the time, people's beliefs in the Pushtima context, the path of grace, which is who I work with, their beliefs center around partly their migration story, how they came to the UK from India, so going back generations, whether it's from the East African route or directly here, a lot of that relates to what they believe and who in their family believes what. So it's quite a domestic view of where belief comes from. The change, I suppose, happens when people start researching into their own life. Who came from where? What did they practice? Oh, well, let's go back to India and see what's happened. And partly that's to do with how Indian politics have now targeted non-resident Indians, NRIs, to go back. So making it easier for Indians to go and visit India and see what India's like and how it itself as a country has changed. And that affects how people see India as a whole. So societally, I think it is supposed to create the sense of community and connectedness in the political sense, but also religiously, people are looking outside of India now from within to say, well, the diaspora is there, so we can go there and we can talk about our message. So for the Pushtimag, gurus didn't travel out of India until the 1990s, which is quite late if you think about the movement of the Swaminarayan temples or the Hare Krishna temples, which came in the 60s or, or earlier. So the Pushtimag was quite late to the party <laughs> and now are looking at the diaspora as not just a, a resource, but as the Guru's sense of fulfilling a spiritual need. The diaspora does call to Gurus to say, you know, we need you to come, we need you to bless this, we need more people involved to try and create this sense of community that is reflective of what potentially some of them feel their grandparents would have been involved in, though that's not necessarily historically the case. So in the Pushtimag, the, the separation between home worship and temple worship is quite distinct, where home worship is the ideal type. So it wouldn't necessarily have been a community centre where older generation Pushtimag would have gone because they'd be at home. So it is a different imagination of what, of what the Pushtima community is, but it's now becoming more and more a reality with all this traveling. Our final guest for today's episode is Jonathan Miles. Associate Professor of the Anthropology of Religion at Durham University. Thank you, Jonathan, for meeting with me for this podcast today. Let me ask you a question. From what you've learned from your research, why do you think religious beliefs at times change very quickly, and what kind of societal impacts do these changes have? 
So I think I come at this from the perspective of the religious beliefs changing quickly and particularly the opposite to the impact of religion on society more the impact of society on religion. That's where I've been most familiar and where my research has most led me. Research in the Indian subcontinent, for example, made me very aware, I should say, that the traumas of the colonial period and indeed the movement into the post-colonial period left scars on the landscape of worship, on the rituals that were practiced and even the bodies of mythology, and that practitioners had to reshape, or were actually very adept at reshaping their mythologies, rituals and orientations to their religious landscapes as a result of these changes. In particular, I noticed that they are capable of giving the perception of stability or change precisely through pointing to the trauma of the change or the action. So this allows for a sense of connection, I suppose, through the trauma, and religion is very good at giving resilience in that format. In some ways, this is just what Levi Strauss suggested in his Mythologique series, as we were discussing earlier, where he points out that um, myths change quite rapidly in response to trauma, and yet are able to give this sense of always having existed, always being stable, precisely by incorporating change or transformation. So I, I come at it from that angle, and then I began to think, particularly after you, you invited me, well, how much does religion operate the other way around? How much is religion following society and how much is it leading it? And this led me to the Trails project that I've been talking about with you here earlier. So in Durham at the moment they're setting up a group of Northern Saints Trails that spiral around the cathedral and knot it together with its wider landscape. And in a sense this is a following of changes in the wider perception of the society, changes in notions of wellness as being something that's gained through movement, through connection in nature. I think we can roll in the slow movement to this as well, the idea that we need to move meaningfully through things and be aware of ourselves and our environments and our impact on and connections to our ecologies. It also ties into changes in people's desire to be environmental, to be forming meaningful ecologies that allow them to engage with non-humans in their environment and beyond in ways that is mutually beneficial rather than simply beneficial for them individually. And finally, I suppose, it draws upon issues to do with schism, schism between the past and the present, the industrial moment and the post-industrial moment. In a way, its own trauma felt as deeply probably in the coal faces of the northeast of England as some of the traumas of the colonial encounters. So the way that it's tried to address these things is by developing a series of trails that will actually remedy these issues. And so in this it's seeking to lead change or lead transformation. So it, it follows the general pattern of things, it follows the trend in society, but it also seeks to direct or lead change through intervention. And in this, a religious body is particularly well positioned because of its ability to draw upon resources of authority, of land, and of history, and to bring those into the present and help to forge a way of being in the present that's more collective and open.
Let me ask you one follow-up question. So you were talking about changes in larger society and how the cathedral was trying to take advantage of those changes. I don't know if that's the right term, yeah. but uh, seize the moment, maybe. Yes. And is there a call within the larger society for more areas to walk or run or go through nature, that type of thing, in the northeast of England? Hmm. Yeah, firstly, advantage, I think, is potentially not what I would want to say, because it sounds like it's got some sort of manipulative strategy. Mm. I think I, I would want to say to speak to the moment, but to speak, to be relevant, I think, to the moment, and as well as prompting a way of being in the future that is hopefully beneficial for all. So, whereas advantage just suggests you're wanting to take advantage of someone or something. The need to connect to the wider environment, whether it's urban or natural, but particularly natural, I think, is a human condition and one that I think people are increasingly aware of. People increasingly are seeking through things like forest bathing, through things like community-led walks or just meditation in the outdoors to be part of something that will allow them to connect to their surroundings. And by surroundings, they don't mean just being um, inside something that's constructed entirely by humans, but being outside in somewhere where they can see the interplay between human and non-human forces in a very obvious way and feel part of that as they themselves move over the landscape. Now, the Northeast, having said that, is well furnished for outside spaces, but there is a sense in which some of them are not as accessible as they could be. So there's the need to create trails or tracks that are accessible, are marked, and that have the meaningful nature of them signposted through various means. Because while a lot of that is held in folk memory, not all of it is. And there's an overriding narrative, I think, of the Northeast as an area of resource in terms of fuel for the economy, rather than as a resource for connection with our spiritual past and our spiritual selves today and the natural world. Of course it has those resources. It's got a huge dark skies area. County Durham itself has lands of forest preservation, sculpture trails and the like. Parks are plenty and if you go further up into Northumberland, I mean, you've got beautiful beaches and so forth. So those are there, but it's more a highlighting and a connecting to them and pointing out the role of human history in the generation of these seemingly natural sites to place alongside the story of it as a site of resource. A few years ago in the British Parliament, there was discussion of fracking, which has now recently been halted, perhaps permanently. But at the time they were discussing it, they said, well, you know, we, we don't imagine doing this in the Garden of Eden in the southeast. We plan on putting it in the northwest. You know, it's parts of the Northwest are a complete wasteland, to which there was a public outcry because people say, hang on, this is the Lake District, this is the home of poets. Oh, said the politician, I made a mistake, I got confused. I didn't mean the Northwest, I meant the Northeast. So there's definitely a perception out there that this is a land that can be exploited for resource rather than a land that is a resource of spiritual connection through our role within the natural world. 
Thanks to our guests who joined us for this episode. And thanks to all our listeners. Please share the link in this podcast to your friends, family, and colleagues. For the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia, I'm Derek Lemons. CityPod is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and funded by the John Templeton Foundation. Special thanks to Lily Baldwin for her editorial work.